Our text is John 14, verse 19, which if you're using one of the church Bibles, can be found on page 901. And we have read this morning Matthew's account of the empty tomb. How when the, the, the women who were disciples of Jesus came first thing in the morning, expecting to find the stone still across the entrance to the tomb, coming with spices with which to anoint the body of Jesus, uh, they were surprised when they found the tomb, uh, the, the, the stone had been rolled away. And there were angels there at the tomb. And uh, we, heard, we read of how the angels announced uh, to these women that Jesus Christ was no longer there in the tomb. Come see, the tomb is, is empty. He's not here because He is risen, just as He said He uh, would come to pass. As Jesus had foretold His resurrection on numerous occasions, though His disciples did not comprehend uh, what was to occur, they couldn't comprehend a crucified Messiah, uh, let alone a crucified and risen Messiah. Uh, Yet the angels reminded them of Jesus' word and how He had said to go and uh, go to Galilee where the disciples would see Jesus. We saw that. We saw in Matthew's account of how after the ladies left the empty tomb, Jesus appeared to them, and they saw for themselves that Jesus indeed had been raised from the dead. Christ's resurrection is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, there would be no Christianity. It was a bodily resurrection. The Bible teaches that. It was not a spiritual resurrection. It was a a resurrection of the body of Jesus that had been clearly crucified, that had clearly died there upon the cross as the Roman centurion had put that spear into the side of Jesus after Jesus died. And John tells us that blood and water came out showing that Jesus was truly dead. He had given up his life there upon the cross Uh, That was very clear when the spear was put into his side. Uh, He was taken down from that cross. He was buried. And on the third day, he was raised bodily in a resurrected body, a glorified body, an imperishable body, uh, a body that will never die again. This is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Apart from the resurrection of Jesus, uh, we would still be dead in our trespasses and sins. The resurrection of Jesus was the greatest miraculous sign in the Bible. Declaring Jesus to be who He had claimed to be, the Christ, the Son of God. It was the great authentication of who Jesus is, the great authentication of all that Jesus taught, the great authentication of His finished work of atonement at the cross. Jesus had foretold His resurrection at different times, in different ways, including in our text, John fourteen nineteen, which He spoke to His disciples the night before He was crucified. As we will see in our text this morning, Christ's resurrection was a pledge to His disciples of eternal resurrection life. And our text is a wonderful assurance that Christ gave to His disciples. I'm going to read to us John 14, verse 19. If you are able, please stand in honor of the Word of God. John 14, 19. Jesus said, Yet a little while, and the world will see Me no more. But you will see Me. Because I live, you also will live. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This verse is part of what we call Christ's upper room discourse. Jesus had that last supper with his disciples in an upper room as they observed the the Passover, at which time Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as he spoke of his death the next day. This is his upper room discourse. Judas has already left to go and betray Jesus. 
And in this discourse, uh, Jesus is preparing his 11 disciples for his departure. He's about to depart. He will go to the cross. Uh, he will go to the, his body will be buried in the tomb. He will be raised. And 40 days after being raised, he will ascend to the Father to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Jesus here in this upper room discourse is preparing his 11 disciples for his departure. Now John's introduction to the Last Supper tells us what was on Christ's mind as he spoke these words. Look back at chapter 13, verse 1. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He's very mindful that his hour has come. It's an hour that he had foretold, an hour for which he has come into this world, that his hour has come to depart out of this world, through the cross, through the empty tomb, through the ascension. Now Christ's disciples here are distressed. Jesus announced at the meal that one of them would betray him. Look in chapter 13 at verse 21. Verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Referring to Judas Iscariot. The disciples cannot comprehend this. Uh, when Jesus says this, they don't know who it is. And it troubles them. Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And then Jesus announces to them that He is leaving them. Go down further in chapter 13 to verse 33. Verse 33. Jesus said to them, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. Then verse 36. 36. Simon Peter said to Him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Jesus is going to the cross. Peter can't follow him in this way right now, but you will follow afterward. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The disciples are distressed over these things that Jesus has said. They are troubled. And Christ begins His upper room discourse with an exhortation in chapter 14, verse 1. Look at 14.1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And in this discourse that follows, Christ gives various promises to strengthen his distressed disciples on this night before he will go to the cross. And our text, chapter 14, verse 19, gives two of these promises. Two promises to strengthen Christ's distressed disciples and in turn to strengthen you if you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, we have the promise of seeing the resurrected Christ. Look closely at, in chapter 14, at verse 19. 19. Jesus says, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. During Christ's earthly ministry, which lasted for three years, the world had seen him. They saw Jesus' manner of life. They saw Jesus' many miracles. They saw Jesus turn the water into wine. They saw Jesus heal the blind, the deaf, the lame, including those who had been born blind, born deaf, born lame. They saw Him heal all manner of illnesses. They saw Him cast out demons. They saw Him multiply the loaves and the fish. There were 5,000 men, plus women and children, gathered to, to listen to Jesus. And Jesus took that small number of fish and 
and loaves, and he miraculously multiplied them and fed them all. And there were 12 baskets left over. They saw him even raise the dead. As just shortly before Jesus went to Jerusalem, uh, he had gone to the tomb of Lazarus. And Lazarus had been dead for four days. And Jesus said to the bystanders, Open the tomb. They said, We don't want to do that. There's, there's certainly a stench. He's been dead four days. But Jesus said, Go ahead and do it anyhow. And they opened that tomb. And Jesus spoke to that dead body of Lazarus, saying, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus obeyed. Jesus' authoritative word brought Lazarus back to life. And those who had not seen these things at least heard of these things. Because the news of these miraculous signs that Jesus performed, uh, the news spread all throughout that region. The world had heard Jesus' authoritative preaching. He didn't preach in a corner. He didn't preach in hiding. He preached in public. He went from place to place, publicly preaching. The world had heard His authoritative preaching. They had heard Him speak of repentance. They had heard Him speak of believing in Him. And yet the world remained unbelieving. Jesus says here in our text, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. He will be crucified the next day, and that will be the last that they will see of Him. Though Christ would appear after His resurrection to some individuals, He would not appear after the resurrection to the world. Jesus says in verse 19, But... You, my disciples, you will see me. Jesus here is speaking of his post-resurrection appearances to the disciples, including the one that we read of in Matthew earlier in the service. We read in the Gospels, we read in 1 Corinthians, we read in Acts of how Jesus, over a period of 40 days, appeared to his disciples, even to over 500 of his disciples at one time. Jesus says, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Speaking of his post-resurrection appearances to his disciples that turned their world upside down, and that made his disciples witnesses of the resurrected Christ. I want you to go forward in John to chapter 20, Chapter 20 of John. I want to read some of these post-resurrection appearances of the risen Christ. Uh, we're going to start at verse 11. Chapter 20, verse 11. But Mary, that's Mary Magdalene, stood weeping outside the tomb. This is on Sunday morning. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid Him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that He had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Why would He do that? Because there were still the, the scars on His hands. From the nails. There's still the scar in his side from the spear. 
an everlasting testimony to Christ's death upon the cross for our sins. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. These are just some of the appearances that Jesus made to his disciples. What Jesus had in mind in our text the night before the crucifixion when he tells his disciples, the world will see me no longer, but you will see me. I want you to see what the Apostle Peter, who is one of these witnesses of the resurrected Christ, I want you to see what the Apostle Peter said about 50 days later about the resurrection of Jesus. Turn over to Acts chapter 2, the book of Acts Just one book to the right, chapter 2. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches after the Holy Spirit has been poured out by the risen Christ. As the Spirit has been poured out upon Christ's disciples, they have miraculously, it is by the power of the Holy Spirit, they have been speaking of the things of God in languages that were spoken by people who were gathered there for Pentecost, though these were languages that the disciples themselves had never learned. It was a miracle. Peter gets up as people are wondering, what is the significance of these things? And he proclaims the significance of these things. Now let's pick it up in verse 22. Verse 22, Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, This Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's last words there in verse 36. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Means that through the resurrection that Peter's been speaking of, God the Father showed Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. As Christ, he is the promised messianic king 
And as Lord, He is deity and is sovereign over all. And thus the risen Christ has a claim on every area of your life and my life. Before the crucifixion, the disciples did not understand that Jesus had to be crucified. And then when Jesus was crucified, their hopes in Jesus as the promised Christ were dashed. But when they saw the risen Christ, and He showed them from the Scriptures that the Christ had to suffer as He did upon the cross, and then be raised and enter into His glory, their world was turned upside down. Christ made them into proclaimers of His death and resurrection, which is at the heart of the Gospel message. And we see Peter giving that proclamation here in Acts 2. In our text, in John 14, the night before Jesus goes to the cross, He knows that His his disciples do not yet understand these things. And He knows that they are distressed as He's speaking of departing from them. And He holds out to them the wonderful promise in verse 19, Yet a little while, and the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me. After the fact, they will understand the great significance of this promise. And how wonderful this promise is for you and for me that Christ fulfilled this promise making His disciples witnesses to His resurrection. Their testimony is given to us in the New Testament and is at the heart of the gospel message by which we as believers have been saved. Praise the Lord that this was fulfilled. Praise the Lord that Peter, James, John, and the other disciples, they saw the risen Christ. That their testimony has then been given to us in the Holy Scriptures as the Spirit inspired the Scriptures and led them to record these things. Because this is the Gospel. Christ's death for our sins and His resurrection. In our text, the wonderful promise of seeing the resurrected Christ is followed by a second promise, and that is the promise of resurrection life. The promise of resurrection life. And I want you to observe it back in our text. John 14, verse 19. Observe the second promise. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus says, because I live. When Jesus says that, He has in mind His upcoming resurrection. But He also has more in mind. He has in mind also that He is the source and the fountain of life. Turn back in John's Gospel to chapter 1. I want you to see in several passages the truth that Jesus is the source and fountain of life. John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, speaking about Jesus Christ, describing to Him the title of the Word. In verse 3, all things were made through Him. That's all things were made through Christ. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So John goes back to the beginning of the world, the beginning of history. He says, in the creation, all things were created through the instrumentality of the Son. The Son was involved in the work of creation. And in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. That Christ was the source of man's physical life and continues to be the source of man's physical life. And that before the fall, He was also the source of Adam and Eve's spiritual life. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Christ gave life, physical life, to all human beings. He gave spiritual life to Adam and Eve. He continues to give physical life to you and to me. Now go forward to chapter 5, verse 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. Jesus says here, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. 
Now go down to verse 24. 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Speaking about the spiritually dead. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has life in Himself. Unlike us, He he is not dependent on something outside of Himself for His life. We don't have life in ourselves. We're utterly dependent upon God for every moment of life. But Christ has life in Himself. His life is not dependent on anything outside of Himself. And He says here that He would call sinners out of spiritual death into spiritual life. We see that He imparts eternal life through His Word. An hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He gives life to whom He will. Then go to chapter 14, verse 6. Chapter 14, verse 6. Well-known verse, well worth memorizing. Just a few verses before our text. Jesus said to his disciple, that just asked him a question, Thomas. I, the question was, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the life. He's the source of eternal life. He's the fountain of spiritual life and eternal life. He is the life. After the crucifixion, because of Christ's nature, death could not hold Him one moment beyond the appointed time. Christ's resurrection was a necessity because of His nature. As we read earlier in Acts 2.24, God raised Him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Him to be held by it. It was not possible for Christ to be held by death any longer than the the, the time appointed by the Father. In Acts chapter 3, verse 15, the, the Apostle Peter says, And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. He calls Jesus the author of life. The author of life could not stay in the grave beyond the third day because He is the author of life. It was absolutely necessary that He would be raised from the dead. He is the life. He has life in Himself. He's the fountain of life. He's the source of life. The author of life. When Jesus says in our text, Because I live, He is saying because I have life in Myself, and am the fountainhead of life, and will be raised from the dead, because of this you also will live. And it would be His resurrection that would be the tangible guarantee that His disciples will live. Jesus is saying, because I live, you who believe in Me also will live. Jesus clearly taught that eternal life is received through believing in Him. Think of chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus. And Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Christ would be lifted up upon the cross for this purpose, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The eternal life that is found in Christ is for the one who believes in Christ. It is through believing in Christ that one receives this life from Christ. John's Gospel emphasizes this in various places, including chapter 3, verse 36, which says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, 
but the wrath of God remains on him. What Jesus says in our text reflects the truth taught in John's gospel, that through believing in Christ, a person is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. The believer is so united to Christ that Christ's resurrection life guarantees our life. Jesus promised in our text, because I live, you also will live. Jesus had already given His disciples spiritual eternal life when they believed in Him. He is saying that this life will continue. And He is also promising that one day their bodies will be raised as Christ's body would be raised. Beloved brethren, understand that you have been raised to life spiritually. I want you to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, where the Apostle Paul elaborates on this truth of the believer's spiritual resurrection. Ephesians chapter 2. Beginning at verse 1. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Speaking to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That was our condition before we were saved. Before we believed in Christ. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Talking about spiritual death. Alienated from God. Cut off from fellowship with God. And unable to do anything that pleases God. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Spiritually, when we were saved, we were raised with Christ. We were raised out of spiritual deadness unto spiritual life. That is true of every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you were saved, you were transferred out of spiritual deadness into spiritual life. Christ gave you spiritual life. You were raised with Christ and seated with Him. And Jesus says in our text that this is because He lives. Because Jesus lives, you also will live. Now also understand that Christ's resurrection guarantees the similar resurrection of your body. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians, just two books, uh, three, three books to the left of Ephesians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 17. Verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits is a concept from the Old Testament. Uh, The first fruits indicate that more fruit is coming. It's the first portion. It says here, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. His resurrection guarantees the future resurrection of all who are in Him. He was raised at the first fruits. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, that was Adam, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead, that's Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, all who are in Christ will be made alive. For by each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority 
and power. We see in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ was bodily raised as the first fruits. It guarantees that all who are in Christ, their bodies will likewise be raised. Our bodies will be raised at the coming of Christ. Our bodies will be raised not as the same sort of body in which we are in now, but our bodies will be raised as Christ's body was raised. Our bodies will be raised imperishable, immortal. We'll be raised with glorified bodies that are perfectly suited to be in the presence of the Lord forever and ever. As Jesus said in our text, Because I live, you also will live. Spiritual life that we have now as believers and the resurrection of the body, which will occur in the future, go hand in hand. It is just as unthinkable for Christ to give us spiritual life, but then leave our body forever in the grave, as it was for Christ's body to remain in death's grip. Christ's body could not remain in death's grip. It had to be raised. And so it is. The believer has received from Christ spiritual life, eternal life. And we most certainly, our bodies will certainly be raised unto life. It goes hand in hand. Now what is the essence of the eternal life that Christ gives? Jesus will say in John 17 verse 3 as he prays in the hearing of his disciples, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The essence of eternal life, the essence of spiritual life, is knowing God in truth and knowing His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in truth. It's having a personal relationship with the living God, a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to know the Father and to know the Son in a personal way. There is a Godward focus of the life that Christ gives And accordingly, the believer's resurrection body will be a body suited for living in God's glorious presence forever and ever. A body that is fit for serving God in His presence forever and ever. How wonderful are Christ's words in our text. Because I live, you also will live. Unless Christ returns beforehand, we will die physically. It is destined for man to die once. Unless Christ returns beforehand, we will die physically. But as those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ, that physical death will amount to our soul's entrance into the blessed presence of God. Now, if if you are an unbeliever, you should fear death. Because death will amount to an entrance into divine judgment. But if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is all different. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul speaks of what will happen to him upon physical death. And this is true for every believer. Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 21. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. He's he's talking about how he's in prison, and there's a possibility that he's going to be executed. So he's talking about the possibility that he will be released from prison, and he will live longer in the flesh, and the possibility that his life will be taken. He'll be executed. He's going to die. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, for my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. He understands that The Lord still has a ministry for him to perform. And so he expects that he's not going to die at this point. And he's ready to continue to serve the Lord in this life. 
But there's something else that he would prefer. Personally, what he would prefer would be to die. Because that would mean going to be with Christ. You see that in verse 23, My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It wasn't God's will at this point. But he knows that the sting has been taken out of death by Christ's resurrection. He knows of Christ's promise, because I live, you also will live. He knows that when he dies, it's going to, it's going to amount to his, a separation between his body and his soul, and his soul is going to enter into the presence of Christ. So that's far better. You see, there's no such thing as soul sleep. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul doesn't say, I'm, I'm, it's better for me to die because I'm going to fall asleep. Better for me to die because I'm going to go to be with my Lord. I'll be face to face with Christ. So the believer doesn't need to fear death. Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. He's taken the sting out of death. Christ's disciple is so closely united to Christ that as long as Christ lives, so long will his disciple live spiritually. The person who is joined to Christ cannot die spiritually or eternally unless Christ's life can be destroyed, and this is utterly impossible. The person who is joined to Christ, in other words, is eternally secure. Now think about what Christ's statement in our text rules out as the basis of eternal life. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus does not say, because of your works, you will live. He says, because I live, you also will live. As believers, our eternal life is not grounded on any works that we do, but is grounded on Christ's death for our sins and His triumphant resurrection. It is for us to believe in Jesus as the Son of God incarnate who died for our sins and rose for our justification. It's not for us to try to work our way into a right relationship with God. It's not for us to try to work our way into heaven. It's for us to hear the gospel of Christ and believe that Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, died for our sins on the cross and that He rose from the grave for our justification. We're to believe the good news and by believing, be saved. Now this does not mean that good works do not have a place in the Christian life. Far from it. I read earlier from John 3.36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son does not see life. Life. Jesus speaks in our text immediate context of the important place of obedience in the Christian life. Turn over to John 14, verse 15. John 14, verse 15. Just verses before our text. Jesus says here to his disciples, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And go down to verse 21. 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Saving faith is a repentant faith that leads to obedience to Christ. Obedience to Christ is the evidence of saving faith. Just as Jesus' resurrection was the evidence that He is the Son of God and the author of life. Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. Brothers and sisters in Christ, understand that Christ's resurrection secures your eternal life. His resurrection secures the future resurrection of your body unto life. And this is to be a huge source of assurance of salvation for the believer. What Jesus says here. It is God's revealed will that the believer would be assured of his or her salvation. 
We read in 1 John chapter 5, verses 11-13, through 13, And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. It is God's revealed will for the believer in Jesus Christ to be assured of of his or her salvation. Religions that teach salvation by works deny that a person can have a legitimate assurance of salvation in this life. But the biblical gospel is called in Acts 20 verse 24 the gospel of the grace of God. Grace is God's unmerited favor. His undeserved favor that's given to those who deserve just the opposite, His condemnation. The gospel is called the gospel of the grace of God. Because salvation is by the grace of God on the basis of Christ's death and resurrection. Received through faith in Jesus. Because salvation is by the grace of God on the basis of Christ's finished work, the believer can have assurance of salvation. Jesus said, Because I live, you also will live. He's assuring his disciples. Now, Christ's promise should keep you and I, brothers and sisters, from despair. Jesus said in John 14, 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus repeats this in verse 27. Look with me in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. It is easy for us as Christians to become afraid and troubled in our hearts when we look at the growing evil all around, when we see nations rising against nations, when we see a society devoid of the fear of God, when we face financial danger, when we face illness, when we go through trials, when we we see Christians increasingly persecuted, when we ourselves face persecution. Now Jesus does not deny the trouble and the danger around us. But He tells us not to let our hearts be troubled or afraid because He is greater than these things and because He holds our tomorrow. He said in John 10.10, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then in verse 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. In our text, because I live, you also will live. Satan tried to destroy Christ all the way back in Bethlehem when he led King Herod uh, to kill all the, the infant boys in Bethlehem. Satan tried to destroy Christ at the cross. Christ's earthly enemies tried to destroy him at the cross. But they couldn't destroy the author of life. Unwittingly, they were actually carrying out God's eternal plan to save a people for Himself through the death of Jesus Christ and His subsequent resurrection. Brothers and sisters, let Christ promise, because I live, you also will live. Calm your troubled heart. Let His promise, because I live, you also will live. Fill your heart with peace. What a glorious gospel that has been entrusted to us. Let us share this good news with others that they may be saved. Let me ask, have you been saved, my friend? Have you been saved from the judgment of God? Have you been saved from the wrath of God? Have you been saved from your sin? Do you understand your need for salvation from sin? I want to show you how Jesus showed our need for salvation Turn to one last passage. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5 is the beginning of our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. One of His most well-known sermons. 
I want you to see how Jesus showed us our need for himself, our need for his salvation, our need for his death and resurrection. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 20, Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. God is a holy God. He is a just God. He doesn't give entrance into His kingdom to everyone. He has requirements. He has a law. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and the Pharisees were known for their their outward works of righteousness. They were known for studying the scriptures and knowing the scriptures. Unless your righteousness exceeds their righteousness, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You need a, a greater righteousness, a more perfect righteousness than they have to enter the kingdom. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. He's quoting from uh, the, the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus commands our hearts. He commands our attitudes. He requires that we not just have an outward conformity to the law of God, but also an inward conformity to the law of God. And he's showing us the the sense of the Old Testament law that the Pharisees thought that they were observing. He says that if you have the attitude of murder in your heart towards another person, you are guilty before God. If you have hatred in your heart, anger in your heart towards another person, you are guilty before God, just as a murderer is guilty. Because in your heart, you have murdered the other. He's bringing the law to the level of the heart. Verse 23, so if, you're offer, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, he brings it to the level of the heart. Jesus requires that in our hearts we would not commit adultery. He says, lust is adultery of the heart. It makes you guilty before God. The consequences, the earthly consequences are not as severe as that of the outward act but it just as much makes you guilty before God. You commit adultery in your heart. Verse 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. So there's a contrast between the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, and hell. Jesus is warning these religious people of God's judgment in hell. Hell is what we deserve for our violation of God's holy law. God is holy, He is just, He must punish sin. And hell is the place of His punishment. Verse 30, And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be going to hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, that what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. He was talking to a people who found ways to get around fulfilling their promise, keeping their word. Jesus is making clear. He requires that we keep our word. We fulfill our promise. Verse 38, You have heard that it was said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus requires that we wouldn't just seek to do what is fair. He requires that we would love, that we would care for other people. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, justice. But he says, don't don't resist the one who's evil. Don't retaliate. Don't seek vengeance. Do just the opposite of seeking vengeance. Do good to that one. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He makes His Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love the one who loves you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Do you feel the weight of this? Do you feel the sting of this? Do you feel the conviction of this? Jesus says that we must be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And He's laid it out for us in very practical terms of what it is to be morally perfect. What it is to be righteous as God is righteous. Why is He doing this? He's showing us that none of us are righteous. He's showing us that none of us are good. We have our own standards in our mind of what is right and good, and we can think of ourselves as a good person because generally we do good things to other people, we we pay our taxes, and so forth. And Jesus says, put aside your own standard of righteousness. The Pharisees had their own standard. They took the law of God and they manipulated it to make their own standard. They, They lessened the standard. Put aside your own standard of righteousness and listen to the true standard of righteousness. Jesus is showing us that all of us need a Savior from sin. Jesus is showing us that none of us meet God's requirement for entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Jesus is showing us that all of us deserve God's eternal judgment. And that we, we need the salvation that Jesus Christ would provide in His death upon the cross for sinners and His victorious resurrection. And so many people in Jesus' day, they couldn't understand the cross that Jesus spoke He would go to. They couldn't understand it because they thought of themselves as righteous. They didn't recognize their need for a substitute to take the penalty that we deserve from a holy God in our place. The good news of the Bible, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that God the Father sent His very own Son through whom all things were made, the the One who gives you your breath and gives you your physical life. The Father sent His Son into this world. Jesus humbled Himself. He didn't come showing His glory, saying, Come and bow down before Me. He came as a servant. 
He took the form of a servant. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. He only did the Father's will. He spoke of the kingdom of God. He, he, he declared who He is as the Son of God. He proclaimed salvation through faith in Him. And then He went and He laid down His life at that cross. No one took His life from Him. He said that He was laying down His life willingly. He laid down His life as a sacrifice, as a propitiation, a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, the wrath that was due us. Jesus suffered there upon the cross willingly. There were three hours of darkness while He was upon that cross. Supernatural darkness. And Jesus says from the darkness, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says those words in fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 22. What's the significance of that? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He had always before called God his Father. But here upon the cross he calls him my God. He doesn't call him Father. Because he's bearing the sins of his people. He's, bearing, he's suffering the wrath of God that is due us for our sins. And in some mysterious way, he was forsaken by the Father upon that cross. As according to the plan of the Father, he suffered there. He was chastised there for our sins. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. That includes an eternal death. That's what we deserve for our sin. But Jesus Christ died. He died the death of a vile criminal. It wasn't just that he, he died any kind of a death. It was specifically, he died by crucifixion. He was treated as a vile criminal because we are a criminal in God's cosmic court. We have violated His law. And because we violated His law, we deserve the full penalty of the law. Jesus died as a criminal, though He was innocent, holy, and righteous. He died as our substitute in our place suffering the wrath of God in order that we would be saved. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the judgment of God. In order that, that we would live through His death. And having offered up His life as an atoning sacrifice there upon the cross, His body was buried. On the third day, He was raised. And He showed Himself alive. And we have the record of the witnesses who saw the risen Christ. And Jesus commands all people everywhere to repent of their sins and to believe upon Him as Lord and Savior. You cannot have Jesus just as Savior and not as Lord. He proclaimed Himself as both Lord and Savior. And He calls upon us to repent, that is to confess our sin to God, to forsake our sin, to turn from our sin to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not penance. Repentance is not penance. It's not punishing yourself for what you have done. That we're to have a godly sorrow over our sin because our sin is an offense against God. And having that godly sorrow over our sin, we are to turn from that sin to the Lord Jesus Christ to submit to Him, to obey Him, to live for Him. Jesus Christ commands us to repent of our sin and to believe on Him as Lord and Savior. To believe on Him as Lord is to submit your life to His Lordship. And to believe on Him as Savior is to trust in Him alone as your Savior from sin. Trusting in His finished work at the cross. And the Bible promises eternal life, forgiveness of sins, justification that is a right standing with God, adoption into God's family, the, the indwelling Holy Spirit, a new heart, a new nature, promises all of this to the one who believes on the Son. When you believe on the Son, God takes out your heart of stone. He replaces it with a heart of flesh. And He puts His Spirit within you. He makes you a new creation. And He begins to transform your life into a life of living for God. Living for the living God. Living for the Lord Jesus Christ. A life of a growing conformity to the image of Christ. 
answering God's call in Scripture to be holy as He is holy unto the glory of God. So this morning, if you are spiritually dead, if you are under God's righteous condemnation, if you have not been saved from your sins, I urge you, I implore you, to come to Jesus Christ right now in repentance of sin, in faith, and you will be saved. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the glorious gospel of grace. The glorious gospel of what Christ has done to save sinners. We thank you for the free gift of eternal life that was purchased with the precious blood of Jesus. That is guaranteed by his resurrection from the dead. Oh Lord, I pray for any here right now who do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I ask you, Heavenly Father, to call them to yourself. To draw them to your Son. To grant them repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for every believer, that, Lord, that you would, you would strengthen us through what we have seen in your word. Strengthen us through Christ's promise. Because I live, you also will live. Oh, we're so thankful for that promise. We're so thankful for that assurance. We pray, Father, that that you would use us now for your glory in sharing the glorious gospel with others and in living for our risen Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.